Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. This is a little shout out before we get into today's show. Please think about Perion to support all the shows in the District of Wonders. As you know, we are now a paying market and we need to keep afloat. The most important thing is to keep going. Please pop over to Patreon. Any little amount will, will certainly help keep these shows going. A regular subscription on Patreon is just the way forward to make sure we can put out these shows weekly, pay the writers and just keep going well into the future. We've been going 10 years there now Thanks to all your loyal support. Please keep it up and pop over to Patreon. Welcome to Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night. Come on in out of this chilly Virginia air and settle in. We'll have one longer story for you tonight. Before we get to that, a quick note about my reading. I just finished Matt Ruff's Lovecraft Country. It's a finalist on Goodreads 2016 Reader's Choice Award, and by the time you're hearing this, the competition will be over, so maybe it's a winner, too. The premise of the book is black people in Jim Crow-era America dealing with the supernatural, specifically a Lovecraft-esque secret cult, all the while being hassled by racist neighbors and terrorized by racist cops. The plot itself isn't filled with twists and turns, but it's very well written, with believable and consistent characters. The worst part about the book is that the nasty things in the book that happen to the characters by way of racist feelings are very believable, because they're things that happened in my home country. I'd encourage you to give this one a read. It's very well written. Stick around after the stories this evening for our fifth song from Songs of the Pumpkin Boy, Close Keep. Children of the Night, give me your ears for two pieces of fiction this evening. First up, a story from R.L. King. R.L. King was born in Grants Pass, Oregon, in 1978, King grew up in a poor mountain town. He and his family lived in an old school bus and shared an outhouse. They did not have a television until Reagan was re-elected. King is the author of two bad men, Parallel You and Dead Heart. 
These novels were created at the request of his friend who needed something good to read. King also published two short stories in 2010 for publishing credentials, The Telltale Soul and The Watergrave Redemption. R.L. King currently resides in Oklahoma City and owns his own hardwood floor business by day and continues to write as late as he can almost every night. Now, R.L. King's Night of the Full Moon. I think you'll like it. Sophia Tixta checked her supplies again, making sure she had absolutely everything she would need for the night. The sun was almost beginning to touch the flat land, which meant the full moon would be rising in the east as soon as night claimed the east Texas horizon. She estimated that she had about an hour and a half before the werewolves would begin their hunt for human flesh. In the distance, the tornado sirens blared out the SOS pattern instead of the long uninterrupted drone associated with a twister. The sirens indicated the town was locked down, pray for the lost, and prepare for a long night. She wished her father was still alive. He had always known what to do on full moon night. But he was gone. A large pack of werewolves had ripped him apart three months ago, and by that next morning there was nothing left of him for her to bury. Now she was on her own, and she had made it through the last moons by remembering what he had taught her. She could almost hear his voice in the back of her mind, reminding her to make sure to pack real sterling silver butter knives sharpened into deadly weapons. And had she dipped all her bullets in silver? Did she spray the house with ammonia so the werewolves cannot smell her? She had. She picked up his rifle, the one the town had given her father back when the werewolves first began hunting under the moons, back when no one but her father believed they existed. She ran her fingers over the engraving on the stock. To Pascal Tixta, Werewolf Slayer, and it had been given to her father by the grateful town citizens he saved on the night of the first moon. It was an old gun, wooden stock was worn and faded, it had a notch for each of the thirteen werewolves her father had killed that first night. She slung the gun around her shoulder and continued taking extra supplies down to the basement. The necessaries were already downstairs. This last box contained her favorite blanket, two books, and a deck of cards. As her father had taught her, she took the weapons and ammunition into the metal safe room, because the powerful werewolves often made their way into the boarded-up house. The basement metal structure had been installed to withstand tornadoes back in the days before the werewolves, but they were the only defense against the beasts outside of town. Sophia saw there were still dried bloody scratch marks along the door from the night her father died. She had left the claw marks as a reminder. She stepped inside the metal enclosure and checked the large bolt-locking mechanisms on the reinforced metal door, making sure it could only be opened and closed from the inside. The long wall opposite the entry door had two beds that hung down or folded up to save space. The bunks were not comfortable. She hated the thin foam mattresses that had gone flat long ago, but her father had told her many times that it was better that way, so that they could stay more alert during the full moons. At the far wall hung various weapons, ranging from pistols and crossbows with silver-plated arrowheads to brass knuckles with silver spikes. Along the wall opposite the bunk beds, her father had welded metal shelves over the small camping toilet. The shelves were stacked full of boxes containing flashlights, bottles of ammonia, and descent sprays, 
first aid medical supplies and batteries of all shapes and sizes she had enough supplies to last several moons sophia was going through her mental checklist of things that needed to be done before sundown when she heard a knock at the door she checked her wristwatch and saw it was very late for anyone to be out she walked up the stairs and looked through the peephole of her front door it was her neighbor alone and it was too late for a little girl to be out on her own just a minute avari i have it boarded up good okay avari said sophia lifted the three large timbers that blocked the door from opening and she grunted as she lifted the tallest board she set the timber on the floor and opened the door avari beck you are only eleven years old what are you doing out this late sorry but my daddy wanted me to give you this and make sure you don't need anything else she held out her hand revealing a large water bottle with a yellow liquid her long black hair was drenched in the autumn humidity he is still sick i am ready tell him i hope he gets to feeling better what is this sophia asked as she turned the bottle over in her hands she had only met avari's father a few times and the impression she had gotten was never good she knew his name started with the letter d but she always forgot and she had known them for long enough that it would be rude to ask now she thought it might have been dylan or something close but avari's father was always drunk on homemade moonshine and sophia could not understand his thick louisiana accent even when he was half sober and she did not want to seem rude he had asked her out many times and she had shot him down firmly each time and since then they mostly waved as they passed each other in tractors along the fields that connected their properties avari was their go-between it's coyote urine avari said my dad says that the radio reporter claims it works on the packs of werewolves hunting in the big cities on the east coast but i don't know what do you mean i don't know if it has to be fresh or if it doesn't even work at all this stuff is over a moon old avari said we used it a moon ago when that big pack of wolves attacked our house and got my uncle he got infected and started to turn almost right away and daddy had to shoot him down i am sorry for your loss anyways i gotta run home i will come by in the morning and check on you avari gave her a smile and ran off the porch and headed for the fields the girl ran so fast that her black hair flowed straight back and her knobby knees were a blur as she jumped the wooden fence like an olympic hurdles champion sophia checked her watch and estimated it was less than a half an hour before nightfall avari was a fast runner and with just over half a mile run through the fields sophia was confident that the girl would make it safely home with plenty of time to spare she opened the bottle of coyote urine and splashed the stinking liquid around her porch before going back inside. She turned the deadbolts on her door and lifted the tumblers back in place. With the last piece of wood in place, she went to the breaker box and flipped the main switch, and immediately her entire house went dark and silent. Ever since she was a little girl, she had been afraid of the dark, and even now she was more terrified of the dark than the werewolves. She pulled her flashlight from her pocket and turned it on. The small light lit up the inside of her house well for its size, and with the windows boarded up she felt familiar childhood fear rising up inside her. The flashlight seemed to be exploring an unfamiliar cave instead of the home she grew up in. 
She went to her kitchen and checked the lock on her refrigerator, then covered the appliance with fresh ammonia. Through the cracks in the boards of her kitchen window she saw the tip of the moon beginning to rise above the eastern horizon. It was time for the quick transforming of the infected humans into the beasts. It was an early moon rising as soon as the sun set, and by the time the moon would rise halfway above the horizon, the hunting would begin. It was the worst time to be hiding in a group, which is why Sophia's father always insisted they hide alone on full moon nights. The problem was that no one knows who is infected until they start to turn into a werewolf. Since the outbreak over half of the global population was gone, and the world of survivors had only begun to adjust, but Sophia had heard on the radio that the government was working on a solution with scientists in England and China. The radio had also said that until CDC comes up with a solution, the best chance for survival is to hide quietly in small groups, keep the power off, and to bury your dead at least ten feet deep. She thought that advice was of little comfort, especially when the packs of werewolves were getting larger and more desperate. She watched the moon rise and the stars twinkle into view one by one, saying silent prayers for her father's soul. Sophia crossed herself and turned to go down to the basement. She had closed the basement door, placed the flashlight between her teeth, and was about to put the heavy cross-timber in place when she heard the first howl of the night. The blood-curdling sound chilled her to the bone every time she heard it. Ordinarily, she would have ignored it and continued downstairs into her safe room, but there was something about the end of that howl that struck her as off. Sophia froze in place, trying to keep her breathing shallow and silent. Two more howls shrieked in the night, both ending in a series of yelps. Another howl, this one more distant, answered the call of the others. Then she heard it. It was a scream. It was distant but Sophia could just make it out. It was human. She opened the basement door and grabbed the flashlight from her mouth. As she stepped up, she almost tripped on the cross timber she had left lying on the steps. She quickly regained her balance and ran towards her front door. Through her peephole, she saw a flashlight moving towards her house through the dark field, and she heard another howl, this one much closer, probably coming from the woods. She heard a young girl's desperate cry for help, and she realized it was Avari screaming at the top of her lungs. Sophia dropped her flashlight and began unbolting the latches from the heavy timbers from the door, and she was able to open the door just in time for the girl to run up the porch and into the house. Avari ran full speed into her pitch-black dining room, crashing into the table and chairs so hard that it crashed into the wall hard, and she fell to the ground crying. She saw a werewolf stop suddenly in her yard and stare at her. Then it howled. Sophia slammed the door shut and began lifting the timbers into place. She was able to place the lower timbers quickly in place. She heard other howls answer the first as she put her hands around the last timber, and she saw that there were at least four monsters in her yard and more black silhouettes coming through the fields. There were so many. She lifted the timber in her arms and put it in place. Instantly a beast slammed into the door hard enough to make the entire house shake. The impact was so hard it knocked Sophia to the floor. She heard a timber fall to the floor somewhere behind her in the pitch-black living room, but she could not see how far away it landed. 
Again the werewolf slammed into the door, harder, testing both the strength of the door and the walls it was shaking. Sophia was thinking about the story of the three little pigs when the thing howled in the night, ending the yelp with a series of deep growls, and it brought her back to reality. She heard it back up, and again it rammed full force at the door. The werewolf hit the door harder than it had previously. This time Sophia heard pictures breaking as the glass slid off the walls and onto the floor. The thing howled again, and again it rammed itself at the door. This time the top corner of the door broke off, creating a basketball-sized hole. Sophia sat up and pulled the sling of her father's rifle over her head. She chambered a silver-tipped bullet and aimed at the top of the door. The other werewolves would hear the shot, but she would have to risk it. And she thought all the werewolves in Texas were already on her front lawn. From behind her, Avari directed her flashlight beam at the door. At first, nothing happened. There were no more growls or footsteps on the porch. Sophia was just pointing her gun at an empty hole in the door that let the night's pale moonlight in. The only sound Sophia heard was Avari panting heavily as her lungs hitched for air and her own heart beat pounding behind her eardrums. A howl in the distance broke the silence and both girls sat watching the hole in the door. Suddenly the werewolf slammed into the door, cracking it further. A long, hairy arm with long, sharp claws reached through the hole and Avari screamed. The thing clawed at the timber, leaving deeply splintered grooves in the wood. Sophia aimed the rifle at the door, pointing the barrel high up on the thing's shoulder, where she would have a better chance of mortally wounding it. Something glinted in the light, and she saw the werewolf had a cheap watch on its wrist, the same kind with the stretching one-size-fits-all band Avari's father wore. It didn't matter to Sophia. Daddy, no! Avari screamed. Before she could squeeze the trigger, the light was gone. She opened both eyes for just a moment, and then she closed one eye to take aim again. She exhaled and pulled the trigger. Sophia shot, but she had felt her rifle being pulled to the side just before it fired. The night filled with the howls of so many beasts that it sounded like one long roar at a stadium. Please don't kill him, Avari said in the dark. Let go of the gun and go down to the basement, Sophia said. She understood how much a girl loves her father. After all, she had just lost hers. Avari released her grip on the barrel, dropped her head down so far that her chin rested on her chest, and she let the flashlight lead the way. The werewolf that was Avari's father half howled and half roared as it began clawing and thrashing at anything it could reach through the hole. More sickening howls sounded in the night, and Sophia knew this was going to be a very bad night. Sophia waited for Avari's back to be turned, and she took aim at the beast again. She placed her finger on the trigger, but she couldn't do it. Deep down, she knew she should kill the thing that was Avari's father, but she could not bring herself to do it. Her mind ordered her finger to pull the trigger, but when no shot fired, she cursed herself for a coward and turned to run. Sophia followed the little girl. With the door locked behind them, they turned and quickly descended the old stairs and made it the short distance to the safe room. She pushed the sliding door into place and spun the locking wheel. 
the dim lights came on filling the safe room with an ominous glow as a fan began pumping stale air through the vents sophia turned around put her back to the door and slid down to the floor avari was sitting on the bottom bunk crying quietly with her knobby knees pulled up to her chest her black hair clung to her scalp and she had tears flowing down both cheeks you were going to kill my dad she said i didn't know it was your dad yes you did avari shouted quiet down sophia hissed after the first shot you knew it was my dad and you were going to shoot again anyways i looked back and saw you avari whispered he is infected i couldn't take the shot sophia said not knowing how to explain why she didn't he will need to be put down eventually the government will find a cure the radio said so the government doesn't know anything you don't know that avari said i've kept this secret for two moons and the radio said they're probably just days away from discovering the cure that means we all have to survive tonight and then he can get better before the next moon you knew he was a werewolf and you didn't report him sophia said you do know what the government does to people who hide them don't you yeah they would kill both of us so what avari said as she crossed her arms over her chest are you saying you would not have saved your father if you had the chance that's not fair sophia said my father wasn't infected nothing is fair avari shouted as she began crying again i don't want everyone in my family to die he's all i have left sophia remained silent letting the little girl cry not wanting to upset the child any more than she obviously already was and knowing that any apology would be meaningless in their situation avari was right nothing was fair and yes she would have done anything to save her father she missed him so much she began to cry quietly not looking the little girl in the eyes as she did she had felt guilty for aiming her gun at avari's father even if he was infected she still had felt guilty enough not to pull the trigger from upstairs sophia could hear the front door crash in several excited howls came from inside the house it would not be long before they were down in the basement trying to claw open the metal enclosure like a tin can of pork and beans sophia rose to her feet and went to the wall that held the weapons and ammo she grabbed a small pistol with pearl grips from the leather holster it hung from she checked the clip to make sure it was fully loaded and that the bullets were not silver-tipped it was the practice gun her father had taught her to shoot with she slid the magazine back in place and chambered around sophia turned around and looked at avari who was staring at her i want you to take this no way avari replied i won't help you kill my father this gun has regular bullets not silver-tipped sophia exclaimed if it comes down to it it will hurt him but not kill him it's just enough to make him stop it won't kill him no sophia lied she needed the girl to take the gun and if she told her that if a bullet disconnected her father's brain from the spinal cord it could kill him she would not take it you promise sophia looked down at the frightened girl trying to make decisions no eleven-year-old should have to make avari we have been friends for a long time i know i'm ten years older than you but i've always liked you so yes i promise this will not kill him but i need you to trust me and take it there are others coming 
Avari took the gun, placed in the hidden pocket of her torn dress, and looked up at Sophia with eyes that seemed to be eighty years old. He killed my brother. When I got back from here, he had already turned and killed my brother. Daddy said he was going to lock himself in the barn this morning, and Barry and me would be okay as long as we stayed in the storm cellar, so I ran here, but, but, but... Sophia saw the girl was crying again, her head bobbing on her heaving chest, so she sat down next to the girl and put her arms around her. But he ate my brother, the girl screamed. A distant tumbling sound came from the basement stairs as the first werewolf broke through the door. Shh, 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 shh. Sophia soothed as she stroked the terrified girl's slick hair. He ripped his guts out and his insides were all over the floor, and Barry was just staring at me. So I locked them both in and ran. Quiet! Several excited yelps and howls filled the basement, and the werewolves began clawing, snarling, and biting at the metal seams of the safe room. Two long howls erupted close enough to leave Sophia's ears ringing in a high octave, and she heard other howls from farther upstairs. The monsters began searching for weaknesses as they tried to get in, clawing around the outside lever that had been disengaged, scratching at the hinges, and at least one began running into the door trying to knock it down. Sophia suspected that the latter was Avari's father, trying the same trick he used to break down the reinforced front door. From outside the door she heard several of the animals fighting. Sophia recognized a dogfight when she heard one, but this was much louder and more vicious. It ended with several yelps and growls, and then the clawing resumed at the door. Sophia heard one of the animals climb on top of the safe room, where it began clawing and scraping at the ventilation motor. It made several angry growls as it tried to move the large metal box bolted to the top of the safe room. The monster was able to tip the ventilation unit to the side, and there was a loud metal on metal screeching noise as the fan blades stopped turning. The motor hummed angrily just before it caught fire, and thick black smoke began pouring into the small air-sealed room. The lights began first to dim, flicker on and off, and then the room went dark. Sophia emptied the only fire extinguisher, but the motor continued to burn. Sophia got down on her hands and knees on the floor, and then she pulled the girl down. On the shelf above her, she blindly grabbed a small hands-free light and placed it over her head. She reached up again and got two flashlights, turned them on, and handed a light to the girl, and it seemed to bring Avari out of the shock she was in. The room seemed different when she looked up at the smoke rolling on the ceiling like gray underbellies of rain clouds about to dump a drought-buster amount of precipitation. Sophia reached up on the bottom bunk and pulled the pillowcases off of the pillows. She tied one around her nose and mouth, and then she helped Avari tie her pillowcase behind her head. Overhead the lights flickered for a moment but did not come back on. Sophia looked up with her flashlight, marked a spot on the wall, and tried to measure how fast the smoke was filling the room. The black smoke quickly passed her beam of light, and she saw they would be out of air very soon. She had to open the door. Sophia pointed her flashlight at the wall of weapons. She was only able to see the bottom shelves half because of the smoke. She saw two of her father's favorite pistols, the ones he called his plastic guns. 
She rose to a low crouching position and made her way to the guns. She clicked on the hands-free headlight and placed a handheld flashlight in her pocket. She pulled the guns down one by one, chambered the first round and made sure the safety was off on each one. With a loaded gun in each hand, she began her crouched duck walk to the door. Avari put a hand out, grabbing Sophia's upper thigh. You promised! I need to open the door and let the smoke out, she said. We'll die if I don't. Okay. Avari released her grip on her thigh, but her eyes still stared at the pistols. Sophia took it as a good sign. The girl seemed to be thinking rationally even if it was an irrational situation that her father was infected. By the time she made it to the door, she had to crawl on her knees. The smoke had filled all but the floor with the smell of burning plastic. She could still hear the werewolf scratching at the metal, and she tried to be as quiet as possible. She turned off the hands-free headlight. Sophia placed one gun on the floor between her legs and pointed the other at the door. She reached up in the dark and slowly turned the wheel lock. As soon as the metal lock disengaged, she pulled the door open just an inch, and as the air rushed into the room she could smell the sour foulness she associated with a wet dog smell multiplied by a thousand. In the dark she pointed the gun's barrel between the door and the metal frame. Her heart was racing in her chest, but she kept her calm, kept her breathing regular as her father had taught her. For several long moments the world became silent and still. The hairs on the back of Sophia's neck began to rise and become ultra-sensitive to any movement in the air around her. She heard a very quiet shuffling of motion in front of the door, and she pointed the barrel in that direction. She placed her finger on the trigger, hoping that she would not have to kill Avari's father in order to survive. However, she knew she would not hesitate if it came to that. Her eyes scanned the darkness and she could see absolutely nothing. She reached up to her forehead and pushed the headlight power switch. Instantly, the small beam of light lit up six reflecting eyes of three werewolves staring back at her just inches away from the door. The werewolf in the middle dropped its jaw and Sophia shot the front of its face out the back of its skull with two shots. The muzzle blast lit up the basement and she saw several more shadows dancing on the walls as the creatures closed in on their prey. She fired another shot, hitting one of the beasts in the side of the head, but she only managed to shoot its ear off as it darted backwards into the darkness. She heard Avari scream from behind her, but Sophia kept firing the gun. Several more werewolves came into view of her flashlight, and she quickly fired silver-tipped bullets, but the creatures were extremely fast. One moment they were in her sights, but by the time she fired the gun it was gone, and she was hitting nothing but air. The gun clicked empty, and she reached for the other pistol on the floor. Several werewolves saw the break-in action and charged the door. One of the creatures jumped from the washing machine and seemed to fly in the air towards the safe-room door. Her hand quickly scooped up the gun between her legs, and she began firing again. The flying werewolf took three well-aimed shots in the chest and it was dead before it hit the ground and slammed into the safe-room door. The momentum of dead weight pushed the metal door wide open, wide enough for its head to block the door from closing. At first Sophia thought the thing was trying to bite her, but when she saw it in the light she realized that it was shifting back to human. 
the muscles in the thing's snout withered like melting butter as its jaw worked up and down its entire mass reduced by half shrinking down as the animal hair on its face was receding and its snout was pulling back into its skull and getting shorter it was like watching time-lapse photography in reverse black hair gave way to soft pink skin of an elderly bald man staring at her with familiar dull eyes and she realized that it was her mailman mr slater she saw he was naked his privates concealed by his large soft underbelly she also saw three large bleeding holes in his chest that she put there sophia saw several long arms with claws extended reach out from the darkness and sink deep in mr slater's calf muscles in a split second she was looking at the body of the mailman and the next it was gone pulled back into the darkness of her basement his head suddenly separated at the shoulders a large amount of hot blood sprayed out from his neck like a large exploding water balloon and it soaked sophia from head to toe the bloody decapitated head rolled into the safe room behind her and sophia was able to push the door closed and engage the lock she looked back and saw avari watching her with wide horrified eyes outside she heard the werewolves ripping flesh and gobbling down what remained of mr slater's body she tried to wipe off the hot blood from her face but her shirt was saturated and it seemed everywhere even in her mouth and no matter how many times she spit she continued to gag on the hot copper metal aftertaste the blood completely covered her face flowed all down her chest in warm streams and continued to drip on the front of her pants she grabbed the blanket from the bottom bunk and began wiping her face and drying her hair she cleaned the coagulating blood as best she could and tossed the wet blanket over the bloody head of the town mailman sophia looked up and saw that the fire extinguisher had done its job the fire had died out and the smoke was slowly drifting up and out a howl sounded out and the growling and scratching at the door resumed it seemed mr slater had only been a snack that had only aroused the werewolf's appetites from above the creature on the roof began nudging at the ventilation system trying to finish prying its way into the safe room she reached under the bottom bunk and opened a drawer that held emergency clothes she found a pair of coveralls and pulled them out they were her father's and she knew they would be a little big for her but they were clean avari turned around without being asked and sophia stripped off the wet clothes and changed okay sophia said when she had zipped up the front of the blue coveralls how do i look fine avari said without emotion as she turned around that was mr slater wasn't it yes daddy always said mr slater was stealing his nudie magazines but really it was my brother barry the whole time sophia did not respond knowing all she could do for the girl was give her condolences and apologies she went to the far wall and reloaded her pistol magazines and then she replaced the spent cartridge from her father's rifle several excited howls came from somewhere upstairs in her house and then things became quiet even the creatures at the door and on the roof seemed to be waiting silently do you miss your dad sophia sophia's hands froze no longer able to transfer ammunition boxes into the deep pockets of her father's coveralls of course i do she answered with tears flowing from the corners of her eyes i miss him every day 
but that was a different situation. Would you have killed him if he was infected? And killed your brother? If I had to, Sophia answered truthfully. But only if I really had to. I can't. You are still young. I'll be twelve after the next moon, Avari said, and I've already kissed a boy. Is that right? Sophia said. She placed a silver fragment grenade gently in her pocket. And how was that? It was wet, and his breath stank. But I still liked it. Sophia laughed a little. Her first kiss was when she was thirteen from a boy named Frankie Cannon. It was wet, and his breath stank. Later she found out he had done it on a dare from his friends. But she had still liked it. She had only kissed a few boys since mostly from steady boyfriends. But she had been single for more moons than she wanted to remember. All I'm saying is that I might be young, but I'm not a kid any more either. No, you're not. I guess what I'm saying is that if it comes down to, you know, you will have to do it. I hope it doesn't come to that, Sophia said. She was grateful to be let out of her promise. She took a small, sawed-off shotgun and checked the double barrels. Her father had taken a green marker and placed a big X on the primer, indicating he had loaded that bullet with silver. She closed the barrels and handed the gun to Avari. Here, take this. Is it silver? Yes. Okay. Just in case. From above, the ventilation fan and motor fell down into the safe room, crashed, and shattered on the floor, and missed Avari by only inches. Both girls jumped back and pointed their flashlights at the ceiling. The werewolf on the roof growled, but stayed in the darkness just out of sight. Sophia placed her hand over the grenade in her pocket, and reconsidered tossing it through the hole, fearing it would roll back inside before it exploded and killed them both. A deeply sour smell filled the room. Sophia's disgusted nose associated it with the foulness of decomposing materials of a compost pile placed next to a fertilizer bin. It smelled of ancient grave dirt, the kind of damp soil that poisonous mushrooms flourish in. Sophia pointed her pistol up at the hole, but she could not make out anything in the darkness above other than a low growl. For several moments the thing on the roof growled the air in and out of its lungs and Sophia kept her pistol pointed up and at the ready. Then it stepped its heavy footsteps off the metal roof. A loud howl came echoing down through the hole. It was followed by a group of howls so loud that it vibrated the metal floor she stood on, and Sophia had never heard so many werewolves howling in unison, let alone so close. She guessed that there had to be at least twenty monsters in her basement. From the back side of the safe room, claws began scraping on metal, creating a loud fingernail on chalkboard screeching noise. The noise started at the rear wall where the weapons were stored, but it began making its way along the side wall until it made its way around to the door on the far side. Outside of the door, there came a slight thumping sound as if someone was knocking just loud enough to gently wake a sleeping person. The gentle knocking grew in intensity. More monsters joined in until the pounding became a deafening roar. There came a small cry from above, almost inaudible against the thunder coming from the door, and Sophia almost missed it. 
she pointed the flashlight at the ceiling just in time to see a small werewolf the size of a large german shepherd squeeze through and drop down from the hole before she could draw her gun the miniature werewolf was on its feet and attacking lunging at her face sophia threw her arm up in defence and the beast latched onto her arm the surprisingly heavy weight of the thing knocked her over and the two of them fell to the floor immediately the werewolf began shaking her arm from side to side and its claws began ripping at the coveralls that protected her stomach area the claws were sharp and they quickly dug through the material and began cutting through her flesh the teeth in her arm felt like little steak knives the pain was made worse when the monster's head jerked back and ripped her muscles from her bone she punched and kicked at the thing until she was finally able to get the werewolf off of her and her bloody hand went both numb and cold the werewolf was instantly back and it managed to latch itself back onto her arm sophia howled in agony the pain of the second bite was so much worse than the first she reached her shaking fist as far as she could to punch the thing off of her arm before she could she saw avari reach above her head with both hands and plunge a knife into the back of the werewolf the little monster released its grip on sophia's arm as it raised its head and tried to howl in pain only wet bubbles of blood and air came from its mouth as it swung its head from side to side avari brought her hands up and again she stabbed at the beast the second time she sank the knife completely between the werewolf's shoulder blades it ran to the far side of the room looked at them with disbelief as it fell to the floor dead the thunderous pounding on the door ended with a single low howl that was not answered by the others sophia sat up against the wall by the toilet and cradled her arm that felt like a river of hot flowing pain avari ran to her side and looked at the arm i'll get the medical supplies she stopped halfway frozen in mid-step avari's hands went limp to her side her flashlight dropped to the floor with a solid clank oh no no the girl said to no one sophia looked to see what had startled the girl and her flashlight stopped on the werewolf by the door the little werewolf was gone and all that was left was a little boy maybe all of four or five years old staring at them with a knife protruding from the back of his neck his innocent eyes seemed to be accusing them of something something much more horrible than survival his light brown hair was well cropped at the bangs and it was just beginning to have brown hair grow at the roots he looked like he was at the age when a kid begs his older brother or sister to take him to school with them not understanding sophia had never seen a child infected and turned she'd not even heard about them on the radio and until she saw this young blue-eyed boy's dead eyes staring back at her she did not believe it was possible there was something about staring back into those eyes that made her feel ashamed to be alive there was something unnatural about seeing a dead child no matter the circumstances sophia had to turn away from those doughy eyes she pointed her flashlight at the bloody blanket avari cover him up avari did as she was told her body seemed to be on autopilot as she placed the blanket over the boy her arms seemed stiff and her body rigid with the boy covered sophia pointed her flashlight at the shelves marked first aid and avari automatically went to them without a word sophia watched as the girl went to the shelves and began loading up on gauze and tapes 
With her arms full, she returned and dumped them into her lap. Sophia sorted through the sterile packages and began using her teeth and her good hand to open the plastic wrappings. The bite marks in her arm blazed in a fiery pain she had never felt before. I know that kid, Avari said, looking back at the blanket. He goes to my church. It's always someone we know, Sophia said. She remembered asking her father about the very same thing, and she replied to Avari what he had said to her. That's the hardest part of killing. I've never seen one so young, Avari shouted. It was answered by several short howls in the basement. Shh, Sophia said. She began wrapping her arm. Her flesh had many small lacerations that looked like raw chicken protruding from what remained of her skin. It isn't infected. Can't be from one that young, surely. But you are infected. You... I am not infected. I just need a bottle of disinfectant before it can set in. Sophia twisted off the cap of the brown bottle and looked down at the clear liquid and breathed in with anticipation, and she screamed as she blindly poured the disinfectant on the shredded skin. After she had caught her breath and her mind wrapped itself around the pain, she wound the tape around the gauze on her trembling arm and tended to the claw wounds on her stomach, which turned out to be less severe than she thought. She had only a few scratches, all in groups of four angry raised welts in a line, and all burned with a hot pain, but none were bleeding thanks to the durable coveralls. She poured disinfectant on the scratches, which made her midsection burn like she had just been branded with a hot iron cowboys used on cows. She knew she was infected and she also knew she was running out of time. Several werewolves began fighting at the door, and it ended quickly with the loser yelping in submission. Something hit the door hard, hard enough to bend the bottom corner of the door in. Suddenly the monsters began attacking the weakness in their fortress. The excited yelps of animals erupted, and several more crashed their bodies into the lower corner of the door, each time the metal bent and moved little by little. There are so many of them. What are we going to do? Avari asked. If they can make it in, maybe we can make it out. Maybe we can make it to my house. Our storm cellar should still be pretty safe. Sophia looked at the hole in the ceiling, and the hole being made at the bottom of the door, and back to the ceiling. The hole was small, but it might just be big enough for them to squeeze through. Her hand touched on the grenade in her pocket. If they could get a head start, they might make it. She thought what Avari was saying was right. Staying was no longer a viable option. They had to leave, and soon. Well, Avari said impatiently. Sophia looked at the door and saw the long claws connected to a massive animal paw reach under the metal and scrape along the floor. It was quickly joined by a second and third set of paws as the metal began bending under the strain. Okay, let's do it. Avari smiled and rose to her feet and extended hand out for her. Sophia took it, although she used her own strength to lift herself upright. I will boost you up, and you look and see if you can see anything. If the coast is clear, you climb up and help me up. Okay. If we make it out, we run straight through the fields to your house. Stay away from the trees, understand? Avari nodded. The metal door bent further in, and the hole was almost large enough for the first of the monsters 
to make it under the twisting metal corner. For some reason the image of the werewolves under the door made her think of the passage in the Bible about hell being the darkness and gnashing of teeth, and if that was the case, she was in hell. Neither one of us looks back, no matter what, okay? Okay. Sophia nodded. Hop up on the top bunk with one foot, and stand on my shoulder with the other. Avari quickly climbed the bunks, and placed her feet as instructed before she cautiously poked her head up into the dark ventilation shaft. She placed her fingers over her flashlight, revealing only the slimmest sliver of reddish-orange light. Sophia thought it was a smart thing to do, especially for an eleven-year-old. Avari quickly scanned the area, and with a quick push-off, she climbed up onto the top of the safe room. She was gone only seconds before her hands reappeared in the darkness, making a gesturing motion for her to follow. Sophia handed her the sawed-off shotgun, two pistols, and then her father's rifle. Then she climbed up onto the top bunk and took the hands waiting for hers. Before she jumped up into the hole, she looked back at the door and saw two werewolf's heads trying to crawl in at the same time, gnashing teeth at one another, like twins fighting to be born first. She knew this was her hell. Avari pulled with all her might, and Sophia was surprised at the girl's strength as she felt her body yank upwards in a hard jerk. She almost pulled Sophia up without any assistance, but her hips caught on the edges, preventing her from making it through the small opening. Sophia felt Avari get a better grip on her upper arm and pull again, but she was stuck. Sophia wiggled her hips to the side and pointed the headlight down, and saw coveralls bulging at the pockets containing the ammo boxes and the grenades that were catching on the lip and preventing her escape. Drop me! Sophia shouted. No! It's the only way! Avari shook her head no, but she released her grip. Sophia fell back through the hole and hit the floor, and she was somehow able to not get hurt by rolling onto her back and save her injured arm. As she sat up to unload her pocket, she felt something grab hold of her hair and pull her backwards, sliding on the floor. The sudden yank on her hair ripped a large bald spot in her scalp, but she was still being dragged towards the door. Sophia grabbed her hair with her good hand and hooked her leg around the toilet, and she stopped sliding. Sophia looked towards the direction she was being pulled, and she saw several more werewolf arms reaching for more of her hair with long yellow claws. She began playing tug-of-war with her own hair, but they were too strong, and she felt her leg giving away from the toilet. Once again the floor slid out underneath her, and she felt more of her hair being grabbed and yanked in different directions. She was being dragged to her death, she knew it, and Sophia screamed. Just before the claws reached out for her face, a rapid burst of gunshots rang out, and Sophia felt several bullets come very close to hitting her in the head. Several painful howls erupted from just above her, and she pulled on her hair with all her might, trying to break the strands. More gunshots rang out, and the werewolves released their hold on her hair. When she let go of her hair, a large thicket of black hair fell to the floor. Sophia rolled away from the door, spilling most of the ammunition in her left pocket. She made it to her feet with cat-like speed. She looked up and saw Avari looking down at her, waiting for her with arms that beckoned and eyes that needed her to hurry. Sophia climbed to the top bunk and pulled out her father's grenade. 
He had always called it a pineapple from his military days, but to Sophia it was a smooth, ugly baseball thing with a fire extinguisher pull tab that looked nothing like a pineapple. She pulled the pin and let the grenade drop over the side of the bunk. As she grabbed Avari's waiting arms, she jumped and easily made it up onto the ceiling. She looked down and saw the metal door screech out one final groan as the door was lifted off its hinges. Sophia saw the first wave of werewolves find the small boy and rip his body to shreds. The monsters came pouring in, expecting a full meal, but instead found a snack. Sophia looked down and realized she had not been counting down the ten seconds for the grenade. Go! she screamed. The creatures below heard her, and in unison they looked to the hole and saw their prey escaping. Avari crawled on her hands and elbows. Her hands had her flashlight lighting the way for the shotgun in the other. Sophia was waiting to follow her when something reached through the hole and grabbed her ankle. She felt the claws wrap around and began to dig into the flesh above her shoe. Sophia screamed in surprise as the blood poured down her foot and the monster howled below. Avari turned around and handed Sophia the shotgun. Sophia grabbed the sawed-off shotgun and placed the barrels against the elbow of the werewolf's arm and she pulled both triggers. The double barrels exploded with a deafening roar that popped her ears into a ringing madness, and the thing's arm was instantly severed in two. The claws in her ankle retracted, and a human hand began to form. Sophia knew that if the small werewolf had not succeeded in infecting her, this one had. She turned to see Avari jump off the edge of the roof. Sophia began scrambling to the edge when she heard the grenade explode. The shockwave of the blast came up and out of the ventilation system, pushed her out and over with enough force to hit the far basement wall before she fell crashing to the floor. Sophia landed hard on the unforgiving concrete floor, unable to see clearly with her eyes wide open as she made it to her knees. For a moment her brain went fuzzy, as if she were in a mental fog. From what seemed like miles away she heard sounds of injured animals but it was a fierce growl near where she lay that brought her mental awareness back. Her eyes gained their focus, and when she could see clearly, she saw a werewolf hunched down and ready to pounce on her. No, Daddy! Avari shouted as she ran to Sophia. The werewolf reached out with both massive arms and shoved the girl across the room before she could scream. Sophia heard the girl land with a thud that sounded like a bag of concrete being dropped hard. Instantly, the werewolf was back on her. A glint from her headlight caught her eye. It was the cheap watch gleaming on its wrist, and she knew it was Avari's father inside the monster. She tried to back away, but she was already against the wall. She had nowhere to run, and the thing knew it. It growled, and she saw a drool drip from its muzzle and fall to the floor. In her terrified state, she saw everything in hideous detail, such as the way the hair on the beast rose and fell in perfect timing with its breathing, how its ears flicked back and forth, and she saw its upper lip twitch as it growled. She hunkered down and checked her pockets for any kind of silver weapon as the werewolf rose on its hind legs and towered over her. It raised its paws and extended its claws in the air, preparing to strike. Sophia watched helplessly as the monster began its killing blow. Avari stepped out of the darkness and pointed Sophia's father's rifle at the werewolf's head. I'm sorry, Daddy, she screamed just before she pulled the trigger. 
the rifle fired, kicking hard enough to knock Avari back a couple of steps. But the gun did its job. The bullet entered just under the werewolf's jaw and exit out of the opposite ear. The werewolf seemed not to even notice that it had been shot. And again it looked at Sophia and growled as she tried to crawl to safety. Sophia heard another bullet being chambered, and she hoped the girl was fast enough to fire the weapon in time. She was, and Avari fired a second shot, catching the beast in the throat. The werewolf dropped to its knees, clutching at its throat to both stop the bleeding and keep its head attached, and Avari reloaded. She fired again, shooting it in the eye, and the momentum forced the monster to fall over on its side, dead. Avari was standing with her jaw, mouthing words unspoken, while tears spilled over the corner of her eyes. She was staring at her naked father on the floor, watching as the dark pool of blood grew around his head. Sophia put her arms over the girl's shoulder, but Avari shrugged it off. A lone werewolf howled in the distance. Avari, we have to go. I'm so sorry. The girl managed with a broken voice that crackled at every syllable. Sophia grabbed her arm, but the girl twisted out of her grasp. She tried to grab her again, but Avari slapped the wound on her arm. Let me go, Avari screamed. In a flash, the girl had the rival up and pointed inches from Sophia's face. Back up! Get back now! Okay, Sophia said as she raised her hands and stared at the barrel of the gun as she slowly backed up. She noticed that the rifle was not shaking, and if this girl could shoot her father several times with a steady hand, Sophia knew that Avari would have no problem killing her in her current state of mind. I'm sorry. I just want to say goodbye to my daddy. Okay, Sophia agreed. Just put the gun down, okay? Avari lowered the rifle and turned to her father and began to cry. I'm sorry, daddy. We just didn't find the cure in time, that's all. I didn't mean for this to happen. I'm sorry you killed Barry. I tried to help you, but there just weren't enough moons. I'm so sorry. I love you, Daddy. Avari turned to Sophia and handed her the rifle. Tears and mucus were flowing down her face in large streams. I'm sorry you were right. I should have put him down as soon as I knew he was infected. It's okay, Sophia said. She turned the rifle over and saw that the ammo clip was missing. Sophia shined her light on the little girl's hands and saw the magazine full of ammo drop to the ground. The little hand disappeared into her dress pocket and pulled out the small pistol she had given her. No, it's not okay, Avari said as she pointed the pistol at Sophia's head. That little werewolf bit your arm. You were infected. I'm sorry, but I have to put you down too. I'm not infected. You are going to turn into one of them, Avari screamed. Everyone I love turns into one of them. No, it's fine, see? Sophia lied. Her entire arm felt like it was on fire. She knew she was infected, but there was still time before she would turn. Even if I was infected, which I'm not, I'm still human right now. I won't turn until the next full moon. You can trust me. Maybe, maybe not. Avari said as she placed her other hand on the butt of the small gun. I'm sorry, Sophia. You're not going to kill me. We're friends, right, Avari? We were best friends, Avari said as she pulled the hammer back on the pistol, her little finger curled around the trigger, 
as the girl clenched her jaw and her eyes squinted almost shut. But not any more. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. That was R.L. King's Night of the Full Moon, as read by C.J. C.J. has her master's from Washington University in St. Louis and has worked in the mental health field for 20 years. She grew up in the Midwest and does not remember a time when she didn't love reading a good book. Between family life, education, and career, time has become a precious commodity and leisurely reading a guilty pleasure. Listening to audiobooks became the perfect substitute during long commutes to work. C.J. was always curious about how readers for audiobooks were selected and secretly desired to be one. But that seemed as ludicrous as dreaming of a career in Hollywood or Nashville. When her daughter told her about LibriVox, it was the perfect fit. A community committed to transforming public domain works into audio format year for volunteers, non-judgmental and free. C.J. has been enjoying listening to completed works and reading for LibriVox since July of 2014. You can find her works and many more at LibriVox.org. Link will be in the show notes. C.J. appreciates the opportunity to read for tales that terrify and hopes you enjoyed night of the full moon. Our second story comes from Terence Kutch. Terence is a consultant, avid hiker, and world traveler. His speculative fiction has appeared in paying markets including Dark Fiction Spotlight, Arced, Fusion Fragment, Nightblade, Noctober, Baluto, Roar and Thunder, Sybil's Garage, and so forth. His works have been featured in anthologies from Pill House, House of Horror, Static Movement, and other publishers. He has two commercially published science fiction novels. See his Amazon author page link in the show notes. He is a member of the editorial teams of Fickle Muses and Z Composition, and is fiction editor for Iridium Press's Ezine, The Again. His microfiction blog, TerenceCutch.com, has logged 18,000 page views so far. He lives in Falls Church right here in Virginia with his wife and several dissatisfied cats. And now, let's give a listen to Terence Kutch's Blood Mist. Some in those first days blamed our plague on a star, really just a comet. 
that by midsummer's day blazed above us brighter than the sun at noon. Many called the star a message from God. Who am I to dispute them? Confirmed unbeliever that I am. Others said it would crash into the earth and destroy us all. But that did not happen. The star passed us by. Perhaps to return some day, if any remain living then. The last day the star was visible to the naked eye was the day before the bloody plague came to us. Of course, the hordes beyond our shores were blamed for this most terrible pestilence. When our troops entered the alien lands, they found nothing but the dead, and then some blamed the Chinese. Our government sent a small armada to discern the truth, but after a few weeks word came back that there were no more Chinese. And then we did not know who to blame, who to attack. But the royal physician said no, our affliction was natural, not something brewed in a laboratory. By that time, our plague had acquired a name, the blood mist it was called, from the last sight the afflicted had, often of their wives or husbands or children, seen through eyes misting in blood, and often tears also. Our troops and our ships returned to a grand military band march past, their mission complete. Without intention, they spread the plague among us even more. Some time after infection, those who had caught the illness began to bleed from every pore until there was nothing left but a husk. From the first drop of blood to the last, this final phase took no more than four to eight hours, less in some mammals such as children, even less time for those still in the womb, their blood pouring forth from the mother before her own body had shown any signs. The blood mist had claimed its first victim here in the city on August 14th, by September, many had already died, blood suddenly gushing from them, first from their eyes, stumbling forward, not able to see their own feet through the red mist. Friends and lovers screaming, running away from them, as had happened to many of my own acquaintances. I had run from them too, even from my own son William as he held out his arms, blood running down his face, but more of William later. My brother Albert too. Now everyone kept away from each other. Maintain a distance of at least twenty feet and avert your breath, the authorities had announced, when there were still authorities. Now it had been a commonplace belief amongst a certain kind of philosopher that if society were to break down we would all revert to the brutish nature of our origin, rape and bludgeon and disembowel, as we had been too polite to do for the all too brief centuries of civilization. But that's not what happened for which I credit the sudden awfulness of the affliction. To bludgeon another, one must approach, and no one dared approach. Few, indeed, were in the streets. Most of those who showed themselves seemed to be in search of food, but all too often they came to the public square to confess robberies, adultery, or some trivial misdeed, itemising their sins in a loud voice and calling upon God for healing. Many were the promises made or vows vowed, and many were those self-accused of mortal sins who died in their tracks, their last confessions drowned in blood. My business partner, Harrison, found me at the corner of the high street, accosted me in a wheedling voice, pleaded that I should kneel with him on the pavement and ask forgiveness for the thieveries and frauds we had perpetrated in the name of Canaan Harrison, commodities traders. He had always seemed a steady type, a scoffer and reprobate, 
but it appeared that he now caught the goddish enthusiasm. I dodged him that time, but there were many others like him. I would have bashed in their God-fearing skulls, but I feared the splatter from those so diseased. In any case, my firm had been idled by the raging of the plague, and we were now out of business. And so I had leisure to plan my travel, my long postponed final act. I promised my brother Albert I'd see him again, one last time. I made that promise a long time ago, and I'd been putting it off. Putting off making the trip west, even though he and Hélène lived less than a hundred miles from the city, in a small town in the hills. I hadn't seen them since they'd moved out of the city years ago. I hadn't gone to him before, not quite knowing what would happen. Yes, I did know what would happen. I suppose I'd been concerned that there'd be troubles for me arising from a visit to Albert. The police would surely be involved. I would be detained, and worse. But now, with the collapse of civil order, I realised there would be no trouble. Not that kind of trouble, at least. And the possibility of my catching the blood mist, and then never being able to keep my promise, lent urgency to the matter. But now that the roads might be clogged with fleeing city folk, I needed to assess the possibilities of travel. Taking care to keep my distance from all others, I walked out to the city gates and struck up conversation with those coming in. Some of them had tried to quit the city and been turned back at the barricades by soldiers who were attempting to stop the spread of the plague. So I was frustrated in my desire to see Albert at the time. A week later, I went to the gate again. and This time, travellers reported that the soldiers were gone but the barricades were now manned by civilians. Seemed to be country people, one said to me, keeping unwashed heathens such as us away from their farms. He laughed, shrugged and sat down on the curb. And the next morning I came back to the gate again and saw him still sitting there. But he was dead. I turned towards home, thinking that in another week even the locals might be gone and I could proceed without hindrance. On the way... I noticed people looking at me strangely, stepping away. Now, we were all afraid of each other by that time, but this much avoidance was unusual. I became nervous and hurried through the streets head down. As ill luck would have it, I ran into my old partner Harrison again. He was even further gone than before, rushing up to me and attempting to kiss me on the mouth, jabbering about God's will. All must die, so all may be redeemed, and so on. I dodged away from him, spat out the contents of my mouth. In consideration of our long business relationship, I gave him a smile and begged off as kindly as I could. But I saw his eyes take notice of my forehead. He backed away, raising his hands as if to ward me off. As soon as I arrived home, I looked at myself in the mirror. By God, there was a large red blotch right in the middle of my forehead. This was not, as far as I knew, a mark of the blood mist. Still, any unusual appearance was deeply troubling to the people. Many innocent persons, sick of some temporary ill, had been shut up or killed outright, protesting the while that it was not the mist they had, but only a cold or food poisoning or catarrh. One wretch had gone so far as to hang a sign around his neck, proclaiming, I have the pox, otherwise a disgusting and fearful malady, now innocent in relation to the condition he might have instead. I attempted to employ a medicinal powder to disguise the blotch, and as I was doing so, I heard the dreadful nails being pounded into my front door. 
the door frame and then the back door. The boards being nailed over the two ground floor windows large enough to crawl through. The house darkened. Harrison must have turned me into the mob. So much for the bonds of commerce. Among the cruelest events of the season, as I must now relate, was the practice of nailing up the doors and windows of the houses of the sick of the blood mist, or those thought to be sick, with the residents inside. A mob would descend on a dwelling, calling out, Is Jacob the tailor inside this place? Or, We must confine the Cordwainder family to their home, for they are deathly ill. And those police, who had not been policed the week before, but idlers and knockabouts, would paint on the doors a black cross and keep watch, and kill any who attempted to go in or out, being careful that no blood should splatter on a passer-by. A nice and thoughtful touch. A few homes may have held sufficient provisions that the residents could survive, but it was not a common practice to keep large stores of food in the house. And so those poor wretches who had been secured, so the mob called it, were sure to be reduced to starvation, cannibalism or suicide. These mobs had not been set upon the innocent by authority, for every man was now his own authority, and the selection of victims for all I could see had been made by some who had a particular dislike for the Cordwainers, or Jacob the Tailor, and so on, or owed them money. Not that they had any certain knowledge that these people had been stricken by the plague. My son William, who had been sleeping, came downstairs to inquire about the noise. I had to tell him the bad news. Have you any food? he asked. No. You should have bought food in the store. Yes, you're right, I said. But I've been planning to leave for the West, you know, to see Albert and... He glared at me. I looked down at the floor and then put on a bright face. The roof, I said. There are pigeons, perhaps starlings as well. We could... With what? I had to admit that we had no nets or poles or anything in the house suitable for catching or killing birds. Well then, he said, I'll just have to catch bugs for my supper. He slammed the hall door and went upstairs. I was too distraught to search for anything to eat then, and fell asleep there in the drawing room. Later, I don't know how much later, but it must have been several hours, I awoke and went upstairs to my bedroom. In the hall, I saw a trail of blood, just a few drops. Had William found an animal to kill and eat, or and here I was seized with terror, had he taken a knife to his own throat? I hurried down the hall and opened William's bedroom door. There he stood, naked, his entire body shedding blood from every pore. His mouth, as he opened it to speak, belched forth a torrent of it. The red pool around his feet was growing by the second, spreading, approaching me. Father, he cried. I could see the red mist, the bloody mist, clouding his eyes. I was overwhelmed and couldn't speak. Father, he cried again, help me. He held out his arms. With a strangled cry, I turned and ran from the room, slammed the bedroom door from the outside. William hit it hard with his shoulder, and I pushed a heavy chair against it. I could hear his hands beating on the door, his calls of father, father. I knew that a single chair would not hold him for long. I ran down the hall, gathering up whatever odds of furniture I could find and pushing them against William's bedroom door, which was shaking, the knob twisting futilely as the pool of blood crept out into the hall. William was strong 
and I hadn't enough furniture nearby to keep him in his room for more than a few minutes. I fled towards the window at the far end of the hall, opened it, and crawled out onto the narrow ledge. The two guards were below, casually eyeing my front door and the ground floor windows they had sealed up. I almost fell to the pavement, but regained my balance and climbed up a drainpipe towards the roof. Now, I'm no ape or athlete, and I thought several times that I'd lose my hold and fall, but finally I gained the roof. I could hear from below that William had escaped his room and was now at the window I'd exited from. He suddenly stuck his head out and looked up at me with a most piteous expression. Father, he said quietly, with a mad gleam in his eye, did you find anything to eat? My mouth opened in astonishment. William looked at me again and simply said, Father, the blood running from his mouth increased in volume. When he attempted to speak again, I could make out no words. As I pulled back from the edge of the roof, I heard sounds that might have been I love you, or they might have been something else. In brief, I managed to cross the roof of the adjoining house, and then the next one, painfully skinning myself several times, and descended through someone's home as quietly as possible, hearing loud voices as near as though through a curtain. But I arrived on the street and went again to the city gate, determined this time to leave on my journey immediately, or give it up forever. As I still had the medicinal powder on my forehead, I escaped any special notice. I had no money, but money seemed worthless, and I would have no food other than what my wits might provide me. As I was standing at the city gate, I heard in the distance the sound of a train. It had never occurred to me that the trains might still be running, and it was a wonder. I ran the several blocks to the station, just as a train was pulling in from the direction of the eastern quarters of the city, where the poorest wretches lived. So ran, I developed a plan to take the train as far west as I could, and then to make my way to Albert's house by whatever means I could find, on foot if necessary. But arriving at the terminal, I found a great mass of people waiting to board, clamouring and shoving. A pitiful few railroad staff had gathered by the tracks, trying to keep order. Three railroad officials bravely faced the crowd, two of them bearing firearms. The train pulled to a stop. The crowd would have overrun them in their search for sanctuary. But then the train doors opened and outpoured the wretched of the earth in their rags. Men and women, children, all of them bleeding profusely from every part of their heads and bodies, stumbling out, crying for mercy, calling upon God to heal them, or at least to smite those other fellows who had shown them no mercy in their rush to leave the train. The well-dressed mob that had sought so energetically to board the train, now retreated in horror and ran away, trampling many of their fellows, and as those from the train groped their way to who knows where, they bled and stumbled, lay down, and died by the hundreds. I had been standing beside a pillar that I clutched fiercely, and so had not been trampled, and from that vantage I saw the whole ghastly incident. Knowing that the train would be of no more use to me, infected and showing no signs of proceeding west in any case, I returned to the city gate and walked through it, into the countryside. Now, it had to be now, the journey of a hundred miles had begun. There is not much to say about my journey that you could not imagine for yourself. I was in fit condition and the roads were almost deserted, or peopled only by the dead. As it was autumn, I fed on grain from the fields, which gave me stomach cramps 
for I had no way to grind or cook. I expected to make twenty miles each day, but there were sentries and farmers with guns and vicious dogs and high ridges to cross and so on. I spent most days hiding in hay racks or ditches, waiting for sundown and the shadow of concealment. I was willing to work and occasionally put in a day's labour in the fields for a plate of poor food, but as I was a city man, not knowing how to farm, I had to be told what to do at every turn, and so I was not invited back for a second day of labour, but told to move on. Once I encountered a group gathered round a fire in the fields. They cast brands at me, shouted imprecations. I called to them, I'm not ill of the blood mist. But they shouted back, We know you, you are one of those cursed by God. I had no idea at the time what they meant, but one arose from by the fire, a woman, and moved towards me. Your mark, she said, that is how we know you. Blood spouted from her face. No one will comfort you, you know, not even the dead. We ran. In my agitation at the boarding up of my house, I had not thought to put any of the medicinal powder in my pockets. I had no way to obscure the mark on my head. Another time I came upon an encampment of soldiers, but dressed in the military garb of another century, and bearing antique weapons. And they themselves were hoary with age. They stood their ground and would not let me pass, saying, This is the stone bridge. We will guard it as our grandfathers did long ago. But I perceived that their barrier was a sham. Their colours and standards faded. Their weapons rusted. And I pushed past them. Several aimed their weapons at me, but these would not fire. Others tried to rally their horses, but there were no horses. As I left them behind, I saw them sit down on the bridge, lowering themselves cautiously and weep. All this time, I was aware of the mark on my forehead. At each creak, or finding a discarded piece of shiny tin, I viewed my face, and there saw it reflected. It felt warm, comforting. I was growing fond of it. The mark was not on me, it was in me. After a fashion, it was me. Once, asleep in the fields, I dreamt I had lost my mark, and woke in panic, inconsolable until daylight, and a stray piece of shiny metal let me behold it once more. In the event, it took me three weeks to reach the village of Bellington, where Albert practised as the town's taxidermist. Bellington had no town gate as such, but in the little canyon that served as the entrance to the place, the people had piled tables and beds and wagons and whatnot, allowing entrance to only one person or one horse at a time, and that defile was guarded by townsmen with firearms, clubs and pitchforks. There seemed to be no way around, and only this way in. I was ordered to halt some thirty yards from the barrier, and so had to shout back and forth with the guard. I identified myself, said I was a friend of Albert's, I lied, and that he had offered me refuge if I could survive a journey from the capital. I lied again. So they sent a young boy to Albert's house to ascertain the truth. I was pretty sure that Albert would have them admit me, for we had much to speak of, he and I, and Helene, about what had happened those years ago, about my promise. In due course the boy returned and said, let him in. The guards examined me as closely as they could as I came forward, noting the mark on my forehead, now plainer to see than ever. They discussed it amongst themselves, nodding towards me, 
swearing and spitting on the ground for emphasis. At last a physician was called, who told them that my mark, whatever it might portend, was no sign of the blood mist, and so I was admitted. The little town straggled on for several blocks, a single street owing to the acute slope of the hills on either side. I was not surprised to see many houses empty, doors swinging on their hinges, but at least the dead were not lying in the street as they were in the capital. The place had been kept neat, and a few people still on the street appeared to be adequately fed. A quarter mile in, a house stood on my right that must be Albert's. Over the door was the stuffed corpse of a deer, bedraggled and rotting, and above each window a large bird, an owl, an eagle, an osprey. Most of their feathers were gone. As I approached the door, it opened. Helene stood in the doorway. She had put a beaded shawl over her shoulders, and her hair was done up in a bun, a few wisps fluttering on either side. I hadn't seen her since her hair had been lustrous, and now it was grey. But to me she was still more beautiful than ever. Hello, Thomas, she said, with barely a glance at my forehead. Come in. Why did you tell them to let me into the town? She shrugged. It doesn't matter. You know why I'm here. A fact, not a question. Yes, she said. I told Albert, yes, I was there, that I'd kill him if I ever saw him again. I heard you swear it. And then you know, come on in. She led me down a hall, past several closed doors. Chemical smells came from each room, a bouquet of death. Behind her, I drew a knife from my belt. Finally, opening a door, she said, This is Albert's room, and mine. I walked into the room. Albert was lying in bed, on his back, his hands peacefully clasped. The entire bed was soaked in blood, which was still issuing from his mouth and eyes. I'm too late, I cried. I stared at the body, I turned around and looked at Helene, who said nothing. This isn't right. I am supposed to kill him. I strode over to Albert's bed, and Hélène's bed too. I could sense where the two of them had lain since Albert had stolen her from me so many years ago. I plunged my knife into Albert's dead face again and again. The mark on my forehead, the mark of Cain, as I began to think of it after a Christian had called it that, throbbed painfully. Hélène interrupted me. It doesn't matter, she said. He's gone since yesterday. I have made my peace with him and with the death of so many others here. The thing on the bed is no longer my Albert. I said I'd kill him. My voice shook and my hands. I'm glad you didn't have the chance. The star has kept you from murder. She approached me, put her arms around me, not in a romantic way, but as a kind of forgiveness. I clung to her. And our son William is dead too, I said softly. Back in the capital, if he was my son. Helene said nothing, but shuddered in my arms. And now my brother Albert. Droplets of blood formed and pooled at our feet. At first, I thought the blood was hers. Parents Cutches, Blood Mist, as read by Alex Winley. Alex lives in a cottage just outside Cambridge where he writes science fiction and narrates stories. His new fridge is bigger than the cottage itself, like a TARDIS, but containing 
far more calories. That will be our show for the evening, Children of the Night. Visit our Patreon page in the links below, and don't forget to like us on iTunes or Acast or wherever you found our podcast. Our show was produced by our editors, Philip Oldham and Scott Silk, and theme music by David Raiklin. Close Keep from Songs of the Pumpkin Boy will play us out tonight, so stick around for that. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify.
If you've enjoyed this show and any of the others in the District of Wonders, please think about taking out a monthly subscription over on Patreon. Any little amount helps just to keep the stories coming and the shows rolling on. We want to bring out the best stories out there and deliver them to you free. But we certainly need some help and support. Please think about popping over to Patreon. A little as $2.99 a month would be such a great donation. Just want to say thank you so much for all your support over the years. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.